Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, we'll hear from former Japanese ambassador to the United States, Ichiro Fujisaki. He was in Hartford earlier this week as part of an ongoing program about U.S.-Japan relations. But first, a new memoir from British Middle East expert Emma Skye provides an insider's account of the Iraq War, offering some unique insights into how and why the Iraq adventure failed. Skye is a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute. She joins us by phone to talk about her new book called The Unraveling, High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. Emma Skye, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. First of all, tell us a bit about how you got involved in the Iraq conflict in the first place. It's a bit of an unlikely story, as I was somebody who was very much against the war. And after the invasion, the British government sent out an email asking for volunteers to go to Iraq for three months to manage the country before we handed it back to the Iraqis. So I thought this is a good opportunity for me to go out there, apologize to the Iraqis, and do my bit to try and help them rebuild their country. Mm. Apologize to the Iraqis, huh? Tell me more about that. Well... During the first Gulf War, I'd been a student at Oxford, and I'd been in all the anti-first Gulf War protests, and I'd even signed up to be Human Shield. But in the 10 years in between, I had spent my time working in Jerusalem and working with Palestinians and Israelis. And so I'd gained some experience in conflict mediation and in institutional development. So I thought, I've actually got some useful skills now. Let me go out. And I wanted the Iraqis to know that most people in Europe were against the war and that they had people who cared for them and supported them and wanted to help them rebuild their country. Tell us a bit more about your experience in Jerusalem and the West Bank and how, how you feel that, that prepared you, how that work prepared you for what you were going to do in Iraq. Well, I used to spend half the week going to Gaza and the other half in, in the West Bank. And a lot of that was helping to build up the institutions of the Palestinian Authority, helping to manage the civil service, helping to develop the, their parliament. And I used to do projects with brought together Israelis and Palestinians to help them understand each other, to see each other as human beings. So I had spent almost 10 years doing that. And I must, I must say, probably that, that work was quite rewarding and I'm sure quite, quite frustrating given, given the tensions, given the problems, given the fact that uh, for the most part, many of those, those problems have, have never been resolved. Did you feel frustrated by that work, and, uh, or did you feel overwhelmingly that it was something that was, that was positive? You know, when you're working on the ground and you've got your specific projects to do, it can feel very rewarding. You feel that you're making a difference. You feel that you're actually helping. But often what happens on the ground, you could be successful tactically, but if the overall strategy isn't right, then it doesn't really count for much. So everything that i done in the 10 years quickly fell apart by the time the second intifada broke out. We're talking with uh, Emma Skye, and her, her brand new book is called The Unraveling, High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. We're talking about her, her time there and how she got involved in Iraq as somewhat an unlikely person uh, to be part of rebuilding a country. So, so now you're turning up in Iraq, and y you write that you you weren't entirely sure what you were supposed to do at first or even what your job was. D describe what happened when you hit the ground in Iraq. Well, before 
I left the UK, I hadn't received any briefing or anything like that. I had one phone call from a British government official that said to me, find your way to RAF Bryce Norton, the Royal Air Force Base in the south of England. Find your way there, jump on a plane to Basra, and you'll be met by somebody holding a sign with your name on it and taken to the nearest hotel. So I had no idea what my job was going to be. But this, by the time I flew out, it was June 2003. The invasion had been three months earlier. And so I assumed the war was now over. And I also assumed that the British government knew what it was doing. It just hadn't told me. So that's what happened. I flew, I got on the plane, I flew to Basra. And when I arrived, there was nobody expecting me, nobody waiting for me, no sign and no hotel to go to. So I spent my first night sleeping in the airport, just, you know, one of the corridors in 150 degree heat. I won't forget that. And I thought, well, there's nothing for me to do here. I'll try and find my way to Baghdad. So I flew the next day to Baghdad and made my way to the Republican Palace, which was the headquarters of the Coalition Provisional Authority. And I turned up and I said, hello, I'm Emma from England, here to volunteer. And fortunately, my name was on some list, so they did know that I was coming. But I spent about a week there in Baghdad, and they said, well, we've got enough people in Baghdad, try the north. So I then flew up to Mosul, and they had people there. So I kept going until I got to Kirkuk. When I arrived in Kirkuk, I was told that I was now the senior civilian, reporting to Ambassador Bremer, who was the head of the Coalition Provisional Authority, and I was basically responsible for governing the province of Kirkuk. So, so, so you show up, not sure that you, you have the experience to do this in the first place. The British government doesn't tell you what to do. You end up all of a sudden running a province. I mean, how did that strike you? Were you, were you prepared for this new, new authority in this, in this strange new place? Well, no. I mean, I've never done anything like that. I've never been a governor or mayor or anything like that in the UK, let alone in somebody else's country that I'd never been to before. So it was all sort of very overwhelming and you know, pretty embarrassing. But I realized that Iraqis actually took my new role seriously when in the first week, insurgents tried to assassinate me. They came to my house in the middle of the night and fired rockets into it. And I was very fortunate to survive that attack. And that attack actually led to your first real encounter with with the U.S. military. Take us through that, because I think that that's that's an important first first step in your interface with the with the U.S. military that had been fighting a war there and which was obviously going to play such a big role in everything that you were doing. Well, I'd never worked with any military before, let alone the U.S. military. But after my house was blown up, I needed to find somewhere to live. So I went to see the colonel, the brigade commander, who was responsible for Kirkuk. And I went up to his office. He'd taken over the office of the governor of Kirkuk in the, in the Kirkuk government building. And I said to him, you know, it's all slightly awkward and embarrassing, but my house has been blown up. And any chance that you might have a tent on the airfield in which I could stay? And he's responding, you know, we're going to hunt them down. We're going to find your attackers. And I was, you know, no, 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 they're attacking me because I'm a symbol of an illegal occupation. You know, all I want is a tent. I don't want you to go off and kill them. So it was, you know, it was a quite testy first meeting. And I turned up to see him the next day and I brought with me the fourth Geneva Convention and told him, you know, if I found him violating any of the articles, I would take him to The Hague. That was before I knew that you can't take Americans to The Hague and America isn't signed up to the International Criminal Court. So, so you're learning a lot very quickly about 
the way the U.S. military works and, and the limits of your authority, certainly. But it actually leads to a, a somewhat unlikely partnership with this with this colonel who then later becomes lieutenant general. Yes. So this is Colonel Mavel. And, you know, despite my sort of hostility towards him, he was very excited that I had arrived because he thought that I was the first of the civilians coming out to replace the military. So Colonel, he was Colonel at the time, Colonel Mabel had jumped into Iraq with his troops and, you know, they were ready to go home. They were tired and they thought, great, you know, here she is. She's the first of the civilians. There's going to be lots more replacing us. So he said, you know, we're going to share an office. I'm going to take you around the province, introduce you to everybody, and then I'm going to depart. So that's how we started working together. And I thought, you know, I can tolerate him. It's only going to be a week or so. I can put up with that. But the more I got to know him, I realized, you know, we had common values. We'd read the same books. And he had a wicked sense of humor. One of the most fascinating things, I think, about the occupation is the way that the United States government and the Allies decided that they would try to govern Iraq and try to split up Iraq. And, and you write about this in your book. We've talked to any number, Emma, of politicians, uh, senators and congressmen who spent time over there, uh, military officials, and to a person, the events in this time period, the debathification, the splitting up of the country into tribal areas and sectarian areas, it seemed to cause many of the problems that we're now dealing with at the time. I guess I'm wondering if you can take us through that period in which it, it became clear to you that the United States government specifically was making some really bad choices when it came to what was going to happen next in Iraq. Well, I think I quickly realized that it wasn't a plan for Iraq because I'd found myself just, you know, haphazardly put into this position. So that was a clear indicator to me that, like, wow, I'd always assumed that those people in authority actually knew what they were doing. And this was a bit of an eye-opener to find myself, you know, put in such a position. So very early on in the occupation, these decisions were made, the debathification, dissolving the military, which really led to the collapse of the state. And when the state collapsed, it just provided such a security vacuum and a power vacuum that people were very scared and some formed gangs and groups just to protect themselves from others. And the borders were open. So people opposed to the occupation could, you know, pick up a gun and come into Iraq. We had all these very angry former military and angry former officials with weapons. So we had made the population very angry by our decisions. And if you compare, if, imagine if somebody invaded America and dismissed all the government employees and dismissed all the security forces, what would happen here? So I don't think it was unique to Iraq. I think this would happen in any country if an occupier came in and did this. So this was a great problem. Then we decided by about August that we needed to put an Iraqi face on the occupation. So we put together this governing council. And the people that we put in that governing council, many of them were exiles and Islamists. And they didn't have a vision for Iraq as a country. They were not known to the Iraqi people inside Iraq. So they had no idea who these new leaders were. And they were given their positions, you know, certain amount people who were Shia, certain amount for Kurds, certain amount for Sunni. So it highlighted the differences in society. Rather than creating something that was Iraqi and putting the stress on an inclusive Iraqi identity, what we did inadvertently prioritized and sort of put the spotlight on people's religious and ethnic differences. Iraq has always been a multi-ethnic, multicultural society. 
And when we arrived in Baghdad in 2003, 30% of the population was intermarried. So people had been living, coexisting peacefully for centuries. Of course, Saddam had been a terrible, terrible, terrible person who had committed mass murder against the Iraqi people. And there was a lot of grievance and fear from that time. I think, though, it can't be uh, it can't be overstated uh, as we talk once again, even recently in uh, American political dialogue about the impact of the Iraq war. Uh, So often American politicians, military leaders talk about sectarian violence uh, as though it has been in this region for thousands of years. And indeed, to a certain extent, it has been. But Iraq was, as you say, a place where there was intermarriage, and we could have chosen to to highlight these sectarian differences uh, or try to close them, and we did exactly the thing that, that landed us where, where we are today. I guess I'm wondering, with some hindsight now, what could we have done better? What would have been a better plan forward than the one we, we ended up with? Well, I think it's really important to note that Iraq's history is not one of sectarian violence. For the vast, vast majority of it, it has been one of coexistence. And nothing that happened in Iraq after 2003 was inevitable. Iraq could have gone down different paths. The Iraq war and the way in which we left Iraq, where we departed Iraq, left the state very weak. And it's enabled the resurgence of Iran and changed the balance of power in the region in Iran's favor. And so this has set off this geopolitical competition between Iran on the one hand and Saudi, Turkey, the Gulfies on the other which has led to their support for these extreme sectarian actors in different countries, which has turned local grievances over poor governance into these regional proxy wars. So what we're seeing is not normal. What could we have done differently? This really is the big question. Because you can say, yes, we made lots of mistakes. But is it possible for a foreign power to go in and occupy another country in this day and age to try and import democracy overnight. And, you know, it's really important to actually ask that question. Is it possible, especially with the added layer of seemingly so little knowledge on the ground about local customs, the language, the the very religious differences that, that we're talking about, it's almost as though the American government and the allies were attempting to do something that they had brought none of the tools in the toolbox to to even attempt to do. I mean, it's a it's a big question. Certainly, can an occupying power Uh, change a country and reorganize it, but we certainly can't do it if we don't even know how to speak the language or know enough about the religion and sectarian differences to be able to to interface with the population at all. Very, very true. I mean, I can list for you all the mistakes that we made. I now have much more knowledge of Iraq than I had initially. But even with all that knowledge, what can I say? I can say that it is all about their politics, their being Iraqi politics, They have their politics. And we sort of pretended that they didn't really count, that we knew what was best for them. So you have all these different power struggles going on between different groups. Violence is an extension of politics. Iraq is a very difficult country to govern, and it's not an accident that they end up with bad leaders because it's a very difficult place to govern. So the idea that a center like Baghdad can control the whole country has been proven not true. So... It's how to imagine Iraq that could function. And I think that would be some form of confederation with Kurdistan and decentralization for the rest of the country down to the provincial level. 
and a change in the electoral system so that people are elected as representatives of the communities in which they live. And that takes away, you know, at the moment, people in Parliament are unknown to the population. They just picked off a list belonging to a party. It's not based on districting. So you need a real change in the electoral system, a change in the governance of the country that will take away that competition in Baghdad. So that's one key thing. Another key thing is to diversify the economy. Iraq is blessed by having water and oil, but in a way you can say oil has been its curse. Now 95% of its budget comes from oil, and this is crowded out at other sectors of the economy. It's easy money. It creates great corruption among the elites who just want to capture the state and take all the money. And now with the huge drop in the price of oil, that has also created a crisis. So diversing the economy is key and trying to lessen this regional competition. Iraq has become this battlefield between Iran, Saudi, Turkey, and also now between Russia and America. So all this external competition in Iraq just keeps pulling everybody in different directions. Emma Skye is a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with more about her new memoir. It's called The Unraveling, High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. We're talking today with Emma Skye, a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute. Her new memoir is called The Unraveling, High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. It offers a detailed insider's account of the Iraq war and the attempt to rebuild the country afterward. In your uh, working with uh, civilians and the military uh, over there at Sky, I guess I'm wondering how often you, as a woman in what was largely a man's world, how often that came into to sharp relief for you? How often that became something that was very important in the, um, in the conversations you were having and in the work you were doing? It's an interesting question. I think in Iraqi society, they're very used to seeing strong women. You can look back over, you know, from the 50s onwards, Iraqi women were becoming educated, were taking positions of responsibility, whether it was in government or in the legal sector. And so they have always had a strong presence within the society. When I arrived, you know, quite early on, Iraqis would say to me, oh, you are the Gertrude Bell of our generation. And Gertrude Bell was a British colonial officer from 100 years ago. So they were surprisingly receptive. Prime Minister Maliki's military advisor was a woman. So she was a woman who wore a headscarf and was from Sada City, and she was his military advisor. So with Iraqis, it was more about, could I get things done? Was I powerful? That was much more important to them than my gender. With the U.S. military, I found them very receptive towards me. There was always my seat at the table. I was always, you know, asked questions, asked to give my opinion, and treated very well. It was never a time when they said to me, oh, you know, this is not for women, or you can't come here. I was working as the political advisor to General Odierno. He took me with him wherever he went whether it was the front line to visit the troops or the meetings with Iraqi officials. There was never a question of me not being included because I was female. Hmm. 
Uh, you say that the U.S. made a, a mistake by throwing its weight uh, behind uh, Maliki's 2010 election. Could you talk about what, what you feel the, the mistake was there? So in 2010, there was a national election, a parliamentary election, which went very, very well. It was a really good event. So in the previous years, Iraq had been in civil war. The country had really been on the edge of the abyss. And through the surge, through the Sunni awakening, through the disbanding of the Shia militias, the violence had come down dramatically. And everybody in Iraq started to feel their country was headed in the right direction. And we felt it was headed in the right direction. All the indicators were good. And so in the 2010 elections, people who previously boycotted the elections or previously been insurgents actually thought politics could work. And they turned out to vote. And it was a very, very closely contested election. The Iraqi people, we could see from all the opinion polls and from you know, comments in the media, had really grown tired of what they referred to as the religious parties and the sectarianism. They wanted to see an end to that because they thought that had brought the country to disaster. So one block, a new block, came together that was called Iraqia, and it campaigned on no to sectarianism and you know, yes to Iraq. And this party won the most seats in the election. It beat Maliki, the incumbent, incumbent, by two seats. And when the results came in, Maliki refused to believe the results. He just couldn't believe that he, as the incumbent, lost an election. So he started to demand a recount. He started to use debathification to try and knock out some of the Iraqia members of parliament. And this went on for months and months. And during this time, there was a big internal debate within the U.S. system about what to do. And my boss, General Odierno, felt we shouldn't pick winners. We should uphold the election results, let the winning bloc have first go at trying to form the government, and the U.S. should try and help broker a deal between the elites. So that was his view. Another view put forward by the ambassador at the time was there's only one leader that you can see in Iraq, and that is Maliki. That, Ma that Iraq needs a sheer strong man, and that Maliki is our man. He will give us a follow-on security agreement to keep troops in Iraq after 2011, when the existing security agreement expired. And Vice President Biden, in the end, decided to go with what was the ambassador's advice. So he came out in support of Maliki staying in power and tried to pressure all the other groups to support Maliki. The issue was that the politicians had been trying to get rid of Maliki for two previous years as they feared that he was becoming a dictator. And they really, really, really didn't want to see Maliki stay in power. So no matter how much pressure the U.S. put on Iraqia, they refused to support Maliki. And this provided an opening for Iran. At this stage, Iran's influence was way down because America's influence after the surge was so high. But Iran saw its moments of opportunity and put a lot of pressure on the Sadrists, which are a Shia group that are very anti-American, put a lot of pressure on the Sadrists to support Maliki, who they hated. But the Iranians said, look, keep Maliki. He will make sure all Americans leave the country at the end of 2011, and you will get good posts in government. So that is basically what happened. And so Maliki became prime minister for the second time with Iranian support. And then we saw him move far, far, far towards the east. So he really moved into the Iranian camp. And in his second term, 
he went after the Sunni politicians, accused them of terrorism and drove them out of the political process. He reneged on promises to the tribal leaders who had fought against al-Qaeda. He subverted the judiciary. And all of this led to protests, which then were crushed forcibly. And this created environments in which ISIS, Daesh, Islamic State, whatever you want to call it, could rise up out of the ashes of al-Qaeda because Sunnis looked at the Iranian-backed sectarian regime of Maliki and they concluded that the Islamic State was the lesser of two evils. It's amazing, as, as you say all this, the, um, the, the history lesson that, that I suppose we, we seldom learn, the idea that uh, supporting a, a strong man who will do what the U.S. says, it, it seems to have not worked in, in places like Iraq and, and Egypt and, and indeed Syria over the years, and, yep. and, and it does not work here again. As a last question for you, Emma, before I have to let you go, given all of what you just said and the rise of ISIS in the wake of everything that happened, what kind of future do you see for Iraq now? You know, in the short term, it's really hard to be optimistic. And so I think when you look at this country and you look at this land, you have to remember this was the cradle of civilization. This was where the Garden of Eden was. This was the land that gave the world the first written law, the first settled agriculture. This is where the Babylonian Talmud was written. So this is a land with a great history, with incredible human beings coming out of this place. And so you just have to hope and help to create a better balance of power in the region that will stop this support for these crazy extremists and allow ordinary people to have a voice in how their country is governed. And most people do not want to live in a country that is governed by the Islamic State. They want a country that looks much more like Dubai than Daesh. Emma Sky's book is called The Unraveling, High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. She joined us today by phone. Emma Skye is a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute. Emma, thank you so much for this important story. I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you. When we come back, we'll hear from former Japanese ambassador to the U.S., Ichiro Fujisaki. He was in Hartford earlier this week for Walk in U.S., Talk on Japan, an ongoing program about U.S.-Japan relations. But first, here's a message from my colleagues about how you can get involved in supporting WNPR. This is where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on Monday's show, in Connecticut, youth unemployment rates are historic highs, with teenagers being disproportionately affected. On the next Where We Live, we'll take a closer look at some of the latest trends and find out what's being done to help young people find jobs. Hope you can join us. Today, an interview with former Japanese ambassador to the U.S., Ichiro Fujisaki. He was in Hartford earlier this week for a program and a series of visits to universities. It's called Walk in the U.S., talk on Japan. During the visit, he stopped by our studios to share some perspectives on Japan and its relationship with the international community. Ambassador Fujisaki, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm excited to be here. First, let me ask you, how would you characterize current United States-Japan relations? I think uh, Japan-U.S. relations is pretty good. I think it's because uh, we are on the recovery road this recovery started with Mr. Abe coming into uh, office uh, three years ago, and our uh, economy through economics is uh, coming strong. Uh, and I think we now became uh, a more reliable partner of the United States in Asia with the uh, economy coming back. And also we are trying to step up our security policy as well. 
this notion of stepping up uh, security is something that has, has been both controversial inside and outside your country. But first, talk for me, if you would, about Abenomics, what the current prime minister has done to bring Japan out of the economic crisis that it had been in. Yes, I think uh, he was successful in changing the psychology. As you know, economy is not only mathematics, but it's psychology. He has uh, given the people that psychology that economy is going to be good. So uh, uh, stock price, for example, was around 8,000 yen, has uh, gone up to now 18,000, so more than twice in three years. So uh, that's one sign uh, of the uh, uh, economy recovering back. And the others, uh, the major companies' uh, profit has been record high, and the wage is has been increasing, and the employment market is uh, becoming tighter. So this shows that economy is recovering, although we have fundamental issues as well, but I'll come to that later. One thing that, that many have noticed, though, a few years into to this new plan, like any growth plan based on economic stimulus. It's, it's stalled a bit. The, the, the wages are not going up the way they'd like. Are we at a time now in Japan's economic history where, where maybe something new has to happen to carry this forward? Yes, uh, I think that's the notion uh, as well. Uh, touché, you have, uh, have your fingers to the right point. So uh, uh, he's trying to push uh, uh, new targets. Uh, for example, uh, three targets uh, he has uh, mentioned is the our GDP at present is 490 trillion yen and uh, make it uh, uh, by t- 2020, that to 600 trillion yen. Uh, that's point one. Point two is uh, to have more uh, women working. Uh, and the third is that uh, every year there's uh, around 100,000 people who are leaving job to take care of their parents. And he's saying that in uh, several years... Uh, we would try to make it zero. Of course, Japan's population is aging. Estimates that 40% of the population could be 65 or older by the year 2060. We see some of the same fundamental problems in the economy of uh, states like Connecticut and all throughout the Northeast. We're, We're aging very rapidly. We're not replacing workers in some key fields. And as you say, although we we have a very different tradition of taking care of elders in America than you do in Japan, there is still the problem of who will take care of people. So how do you think Japan is is facing this issue of a rapidly aging population and and how to deal with it? Yes, uh, we have plunged into uh, aging society more more quicker than any other country in the world. Uh, At present, uh, age over 65 in Japan is 27% whereas the United States is 15%. So we cannot uh, really uh, maintain this society. Uh, over age over 65 is, is nothing bad. Uh, I am one of them as well. <laughs> However, in order to sustain a society, we have to have working people who will be paying tax and uh, will produce things. So uh, uh, the problem we are facing is that uh, we are the longest living uh, society. The solution comes from how we can produce a working population and uh, how to do it. Uh, we have to have more uh, uh, nursery homes uh, where women can uh, leave uh, children to work. And uh, we're encouraging a lot of women forces to come in as well. One thing, and not to draw too, too many parallels between where we live here in the northeast of, of America and Japan, but for us here in Connecticut, we notice that our population is ap- rapidly aging. But the only thing that keeps us from losing 
a larger percentage of population is, is immigration. We have immigrants coming into our country and into our state, indeed, from all over the world, and that is not something that traditionally Japan has had. Do you, do you believe that immigration from outside of Japan is part of the solution to, to a changing Japanese economy? Uh, it could be, but uh, you're totally right that we are not having uh, immigrants as uh, uh, many as uh, Europeans or uh, Americans. And uh, I think uh, uh, eventually we will uh, see a more diversified society. But uh, at this juncture, I will admit that Japan hasn't had uh, too many immigrants from abroad. One thing that uh, your prime minister has weighed in on is recently announcing the country would triple aid to assist refugees and internally displaced people in Syria and Iraq. So it seems as though Japan is increasingly playing a role in helping those who are displaced by some of the crises in the Middle East. That doesn't mean, however, taking in, as the United States will, some immigrants who are coming from, from that region. Myself was uh, chairman of the executive committee of United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Refugees Office, and uh, uh, when I was uh, in Geneva, and uh, uh, we were the number two donor to UNHCR refugee organization, next only to United States. This refugee issue is uh, very important for us, and we try to uh, extend our help. As you say, uh, if we have uh, received so many refugees, uh, we haven't. Uh, we have uh, rather strictly. Uh, interpreted the definition of refugees, uh, the political asylum and uh, uh, those who had been uh, suffering for political reasons and others, uh, which is uh, inscribed in the uh, uh, Refugee Convention, and that is the situation up till now. Uh, How this will uh, develop in the future, uh, seeing uh, the new situation uh, emerging in the uh, uh, refugee situation, we have to see. Japan recently authorized overseas combat missions for its military, and this is, of course, the first time in a very long time. Can you explain how this this came to be and maybe talk through what what this means to the country of Japan to actually be able to exert, if even in a limited way, its military force overseas? We shouldn't exaggerate that too much. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not that uh, we are going to send a combat group or anything. For example, in the vicinity of Japan... U.S. is uh, fighting for us and uh, was attacked. Can can we help United States ships? Under the uh, interpretation before, it was not we were not able to help it, but now uh, try to make that uh, happen. In the other cases, for example, if peacekeeping operation was sent to somewhere in Middle East and uh, we were there, not fighting, uh, we were stationing with uh, some other countries, uh, battalion, and if that Italian was attacked by terrorists when we were stationed uh, next to that. Can we go and help them? It was not possible, but now we can help them. It's uh, only collective self-defense that we are trying to do, and it's not that uh, we are changing our concept at all. But yet this move has still been quite controversial within Japan. Can you talk that through? Why has it been so hotly debated amongst your politicians whether or not to take this, as you say, fairly limited uh, move? I think it's a fairly limited, uh, but people are concerned that uh, it may sort of uh, develop into uh, larger activities in the future if uh, we push this through. So I think that there's that concern. 
Can you talk about your relationship with your closest neighbor and, of course, the one with, with which you have the most important relationship, China? Uh, Mr. Abe recently said that he wants a stable relationship between China and Japan. What does that mean to you, a, a stable Chinese-Japanese relationship? I think stable relations mean that it's no, not under tension because economically we are uh, the most important partners. Uh, we invest the number one investor into China, and uh, also uh, China is the um, most uh, important uh, export partner for Japan, Japanese goods. So uh, we really need uh, China, and China needs us uh, from that point. However, in political uh, we have uh, several issues. Uh, of course, uh, like the United States, uh, we are concerned about the human rights situation in China, uh, military glow, grow up, uh, which is exemplified in uh, South China Sea. And, and bilaterally, uh, China is claiming our territory of Senkaku and uh, sending in ships. Uh, that, that is an issue. And uh, China it says that they are concerned about uh, Japanese uh, view of history. Japan has not really taken the history lessons. So these are the issues uh, often arises between uh, Japan and China. But we are neighbors. We have to live together, and uh, we have to always uh, slow down the tensions uh, that may arise. I'd like to ask you how your country is recovering from the tsunami of a few years ago and, and the failure of the nuclear facilities in the northern part of the country. It's obviously something that we've talked about in our program before, quite a bit, and we're always interested in how Japan has bounced back. How do you view the recovery post-tsunami? Uh, first of all, uh, we were helped by people around the world, but number one on the list were Americans, and American government, American military, American schools, American churches, American kids, American people. Everyone come to us and uh, say that uh, they want to do the help. We were so grateful that Americans stood us next to us uh, at the most critical moment in our post-war history. So uh, I'd say I'm not a representative of uh, Japan anymore, but I would say that we will never forget your friendship. And from bottom of heart, we'll say arigato gozaimasu. Arigato, thank you very much to American friends. We are now on the recovery road. About 470,000 people who had been displaced from their home are down to 20,000 now. As for uh, nuclear-contained uh, salts and things like that, it's uh, uh, now starting to be taken care of uh, very rapidly. I have one last question for you, and it's, it's on a much less weighty topic. Um, this week on, on NPR, I heard a very interesting story about the Hotel Okura in Tokyo, which was built in the 1960s before the, the Tokyo Olympics of 1964, and it's become a very famous hotel in part because it's hosted many foreign uh, diplomats and all sorts of foreign dignitaries. And it represents a type of, of architecture that is dwindling in, in Japan and certainly in the world, this, this mid-century style. And there's been some concern that it is being rebuilt, revamped in order to make room for a new hotel in 2020 for the, the next Tokyo Olympics. I guess I'm wondering if you have been following this closely and, and how well you know the Hotel Okura? You see, uh, when Hotel Okura was first built in 1963, I went there as a young boy, and uh, I swam in that pool. It was a shiny new infrastructure in Japan, and we were all proud of that. And 50 years later, people are saying that it's 
rotten, decayed, or too old, so we have to refurbish it. I feel like uh, people are saying that I have to be refurbish it as well. <laughs> so feel very bad about it myself. But uh, economically, I understand that they have to uh, be doing this. Uh, uh, one reason is that it's uh, uh, rather low, only uh, 12, 13 stories high in the mid- middle of Tokyo, and uh, uh, there are so high rises now. Uh, so I asked uh, my, uh, I was concerned as well, so I asked the manager, what are you going to do with that design? And he said the Hotel Opera's original was designed by Mr. Taniguchi, an architect. And uh, his son is also an architect. They asked Taniguchi's son, the son, to design this new hotel opera and asked, please bring in the remain the design of your father. And because it's son, he willingly accepted. And uh, I was told by the manager that uh, the new hotel opera the outside will be different, but inside the lobby, it will bring in the uh, spirit, philosophy of the original uh, architect. So you feel okay about that? We have to see, but I think if the son said he's going to inherit uh, what father has done, I think he'll try to do the good job. Ambassador, thank you so much for spending time with us. I appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you very much, John. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown with Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. You can continue our conversation. Go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky, and thanks for joining us.